Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. All right, everybody, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Um, We're in Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 2. When you're there, please stand up. Mark chapter 12, 1 through 2, or 1 through 12. My kiddos, y'all please stand up. We stand to honor the reading of God's word. This truly is the best part of the morning, like we actually get to read the very words of God. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenant, say tenant. Farmers, he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And at harvest time, he sent a servant, say servant, to the farmers to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard for him. But they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, say servant, to them and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another and they killed that one. He also sent many others, and some they beat, and others they killed, and, and still had one to send, a beloved son, say son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers, say tenants again. Yeah, if they don't belong, there's something wrong with this picture. Those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this in scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this came about about from the Lord and is wonderful. Say wonderful. It is wonderful in his eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against who? Them. And so they left him and they went away. This is God's word. And now we can all agree that Jesus is probably one of the best storytellers we've ever seen. Like, especially when it comes to the use of parables. If you followed along in Mark chapter 4, you know he's a master parable storyteller. Like, none of his stories really are longer than one page. They're really kind of short, and and yet they are perfect. They are easily understood by the insiders. They're rich in meaning, right, and they're clear in their content. Like, even the story that he told just now is something that's so clear, and it's so easy to see. But there's one thing you might not see. Okay, in this story, by the way, he tells the story, and, and who's present during the telling of the story, he's actually taking one step closer to the cross, And that's what you need to see. In his last week on earth, Jesus told this gospel parable about his own coming death and the judgment that would come upon those false teachers, those false leaders. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, he said this, With every story he told, our Savior took one step closer to the cross. This is going to mean so much in a minute. You're going to have to understand what's really going on. So now, if you're paying attention, Mark is inviting you to watch the story unfold as Jesus takes one step closer to the cross. This is the fourth prediction of his suffering and death, right? And this prediction is different than the other ones, right? This plot, this actually, this prediction will be the very thing that moves him into danger. 
And it's because, not only, of, not, not only because of its content, but it's also because of the immediate audience. Who is present in the scene? Right, if you remember back from chapter 11, we have the Sanhedrin, right? We, we have the crowd. We have, we have representatives from the Sanhedrin. We have Pharisees. We have scribes. We have chief priests. So in Jesus' three you know, previous passion predictions in chapter 8 through 10, we were all, like, we were all made, um, the only people who were made aware of his coming suffering and death were who? The disciples, just the insiders. The intent, right, the intent of those three passions was to prepare them for his coming suffering, death, and resurrection because they did not understand why he really came. But this prediction is so much different. This one's not private, right? He is, he is doing this prediction in the presence of the Jewish leaders, Okay, the audience is watching, and what's really, really fascinating is this one parable will be the very parable that brings him to his death. So in chapter 8, let me, let, me, let me just help you think through a couple of things. In chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus told his disciples that he must suffer. You remember that? He said he must suffer you know, at the hands of who? At the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Remember that? In chapter 8, verse 31, he said, I'm going to be handed over to them, and I'm going to have to suffer and be killed and then rise from the dead. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to you if you look back in chapter 11, verse 27, to see what happened. In, in chapter 11, verse 27, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, they came to him, and they said what to him? Yeah, but what authority are you doing these things? They were planning to do what with him? They want to kill him. They want to arrest him, right? They want to kill him. So it shouldn't be a surprise to you. Jesus has already predicted this happening three times, right? Jesus predicted that the religious leaders in the temple would come to him and they would be the very cause of his arrest, his suffering, his death, and then he will rise from the grave. So it shouldn't surprise you that those people are the ones who came to confront him in the temple. They challenge his authority because he cleansed the temple, right? The previous day, remember that? Just two days before this event, he flipped over the tables and he drove out the money changers. Remember those things. This is very, very important. And so they challenge his authority. And he responds, he responds to them how in chapter 11? How does he respond to them questioning his authority? By asking a question, right? And their answer to his question would have actually been the answer to their question. Do you remember that? If they would have answered that question correctly, they would have had the answer to their question. He was very, very wise. And instead of giving the answer they knew, they declined to answer the question. Do you remember this? Okay, they decline. They say, we're not going to answer this because we know if we answer this the wrong way, we will lose everything we have, right? And so they, they pretend to be ignorant. We don't know, right? And so then in verse 33, how does Jesus answer in chapter 11? Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he silenced them. Do you remember that? He silenced the leaders of the temple, but that's not all. He's not finished yet. After silencing them, he's going to go on to expose their true character and the wicked intentions of their heart by telling this parable. Now, now you need to understand a couple of things about the text. First of all, the chapter divisions and the verses are not in the original context. Do you know that? Right? In the original book of Mark, when it was written, it wasn't written with chapter 1 and the little number put beside it. Those numbers were put there by our scholars so we can understand it. And so you just need to see something right up front. Um, the chapter division in 11 and 12 doesn't really serve you well. Right? Most people will read that and think that we changed to a different scene or we went somewhere else or the next day started, but that's actually not what happened. He just silenced them and said, neither will I tell you by what I, authority I do these things. And then he turns back to them and he begins to speak to them. So look at chapter 12, verse 1. Who is he speaking to? 
there we go. He's, he's speaking to the representatives of the Sanhedrin, right? The, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests. So you need to see this. The, the chapter break isn't there in the original text. He turns after silencing them, and he's going to go a little bit further. Okay, now the, now the truth is about to come out. We need to understand what is so unique about this parable. He's taking one step closer to death, but I want to give you the big idea, and then we're going to try to try to tie it all back up at the end. Here's your big idea this morning. False leaders want to use you. False leaders want to use you. Okay, that, that is where we're going. That's what we're going to see in the parable. This is what I want you to understand. So this morning, let us discover how Jesus exposes this by the use of this very unique parable and takes a step closer to his own death. So it's been a while, right, if you remember right, it's been a while since we've heard Jesus speak in parables. When's the last time we saw Jesus speak in a parable? Do you remember? Chapter 4. How many chapters is that away from here? That's a long way. We are in chapter 12 now, so we're, that's right, so we're eight, we have, we have some, we have some space in between the last parable and this one. James Edwards in his commentary said this, this is the only major parable outside of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark, and the unique placement of this parable should alert you to its significance. This is so interesting when you dive into it. Like, it's very, very, very significant. So suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus speaks again in a parable. So you need to write why next to that. That whole section, when you're looking at the text in front of you, you need to have a big O Y right there. Why now? Like, why after seven chapters does he pick it back up in chapter 12 and speak in a parable? What is the purpose of this unexpected parable? And, and, and so, first of all, you need to understand the unique placement of the parable then makes it, uh, should alert you to its significance, is what James Edwards says. He says, now, he, you know, now we are standing in the temple with the Sanhedrin present and the crowd present. So what is the purpose in the timing of this parable? You need to write why. Why, why, why. Good students of the scripture always write why. Right? There's nothing, there's nothing. You will miss it all if you understand why. Everything has changed. Okay, this is where you need to start processing the timeline of the book of Mark. Everything has changed. Like, listen, before entering Jerusalem, Jesus intentionally avoided conflict with who? The religious leaders. Do you understand this? For 11 chapters, right? For 11 chapters, he intentionally avoided conflict with the religious leaders, right? He, he, would, he would speak in parables to avoid having conflict with them. Do you remember this, right? But now, like, he, he enters the temple on a Monday, he makes his way to the temple, and then in frustration, he leaves the temple and he curses the what? The fig tree, right? He curses the fig tree and it withers, right? We talked about that in depth. And, and then he goes back to the temple the next day and he cleanses the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and overturning those tables of those people selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to pass through the temple as a way to shortcut through the city. Instead, he stops them because they were trying to withhold forgiveness from who? the poor, the Gentiles, the outsiders. And so now, Tuesday, after silencing the religious leaders and challenging their authority, he comes to, to take it back to them. He's stepping back into the ring, and he's going to confront them face-to-face with a parable. And this parable is going to bring judgment. It's so significant. Jesus is now on the offensive. Do you understand? He's on attack. He's no longer being passive. Everything has changed. Whenever he walked into Jerusalem, it's all different. He's no longer going to back down from the religious leaders. He's no longer going to hide what he says in secret. Right? He's now going to step out at the right time with a perfectly executed plan. And when he does that, he will be taking one step closer to the cross. 
So I want you to see just the drama that's in the text before we actually study it. We have a man who has avoided conflict for how many years of his life? At least 30. Avoided conflict with those that he could not stand. Do you understand? He's been, he's been a very, very, very patient God. Okay? He has been very patient. He's avoided conflict. But now he steps into the scene, he flips over the tables, and he's ready to address the Sanhedrin face-to-face. Feel the tension, like feel the hostility. Remember, the, the Sanhedrin is now afraid if they answer the right way, the true way, they will lose their life. Do you remember that? They are afraid that the crowd is going to do what with them? Good memory. He's afraid they're going to stone them. So feel the tension. There are, here's why, here's your why, there are eternal implications for all of those involved in this parable. That's what you need to understand. He is using a parable to bring to light the internal implications of everything for all of those who are in play. Okay, if the Sanhedrin goes on with their plan, if they go on with the plan that they struck in chapter 11 to kill him, if they go on with this plan, it will be the worst mistake they've ever made. This could not be more significant and serious. The choice that the Sanhedrin is about to make will cost them their very souls. Do you understand that? He's warning them. He's warning them. He already knows that they're planning to kill him. And so he warns them through a parable. But the parable is not only unique because of that, it's also in its timing. Okay, it's timing. This is so, so important. And even the purpose of a parable itself. Most parables, when we study Mark chapter 4, I hope you remember this, but most parables are not meant to be allegorical. Okay, this is what I mean. You're not supposed to take every single detail from a parable and try to apply it to your life. Okay, every parable from this point before this point had one main point, and we're supposed to circle around that one main point. Okay, we're not supposed to apply different details of a parable to our life in different ways. That's not what happened. But this parable is so much different. Hey, if you were studying this parable, then this is what you would see. Imagine watching a movie, okay, and you're watching the credits kind of play out at the end. Here's what you would see at the end of this parable. Here's what it would read, right? The man, the owner of the vineyard is God the Father. Right? That's what it's going to say. The, the man, the, the owner of the field, is played by God the Father. And then we're going to see that the vineyard is Israel. And then we're going to see that the tenants of the vineyard are the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Do you see that? That's what he would say. And then he would say, you would see another title that says, the servants in the story were the prophets. Right? And then you'd say, the beloved son is played by Jesus. This is not a typical parable. We are meant to apply this in an allegorical way. So this story, in just a few words, Jesus tells, if you're looking for a a synopsis of the entire Old Testament, it just happened in 12 verses for you. Do you understand? This is the summary of Scripture, okay? Like, this is the story of Israel's history. In just a few words, he describes a loving father, a loving God, who sent prophets to Israel. Do you understand that? He sent prophets to Israel, and he told them what he expected, what he wanted, right? And then he exposes the wicked intentions of the leaders of the Israelites, right? They wanted the inheritance for themselves. Notice that in, cha- in, in verse um, 7, right? They want to kill him, so what can be theirs? The inheritance. That's what they want. They want money, right? They want money for themselves. They want power for themselves. They want authority for themselves. They want the people to serve them and not serve God. He's telling the story of the entire Old Testament. William Lane, in his commentary, he wrote this. He said, it's a judgment parable. Jesus' parable serves to expose the planned attempt against Jesus' own life and God's judgment against those planners. Okay, look back at verse 1. Let us, let us kind of begin kind of looking through this again. Verse 1, 
He began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard but, and, and then put a fence around it and then dug a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. The use of the vineyard would have been a wisely, a wisely used allegory by Jesus. The original audience would have known exactly what that was. Do you understand? Like everybody in Palestine knew exactly what a vineyard was. They were very familiar with it. But more than that, the original audience reading this text would have said, we understand that he's referencing Israel. They would have thought through texts like Psalm chapter 118 or, 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 or Isaiah chapter 5. Right? They would have immediately known that, that, that Jesus is speaking about Israel. So the action in this parable is clearly focused on who, though? Think. The tenants. Good, James. Good. So the, he, the, the action of the parable is focused on the tenants, not the vineyard. This is very important when you start thinking through the text. So what is common in the parable is the use of the vineyard. Okay, that's very common. Most, most rabbis would have done that at the time to represent Israel. That's very common. But what is uncommon is what you actually need to pay attention to. The behavior of God the Father, the landowner, and the behavior of the tenants is very uncommon. Hey, that's something that you should highlight. That's something that you should mark. It's something that you should understand. The owner, like, like nobody would have ever expected the owner to act the way that he did. And then nobody would have ever expected that the tenant farmers would have acted the way they did. The owner, listen, the owner, look at verse 1 again. He is demonstrating great care for the vineyard. He plants it. Right, and then he, and then notice the care. Like he puts a fence around, and he digs a wine press, and then he even builds a watchtower to watch out for the enemy. This is great care. Do you understand? The owner did this. Like what a gracious and kind God. And then in verse two, like he begins sending who. And who are the servants? They're the prophets. Say prophets. They're the prophets. Right. He sends the prophets to them. Right. He sends the prophets to collect the fruit, but they are met with violence. And then notice that it's increasing violence. Okay, in chapter 3, the servant is beaten. Do you see that? Right? And then in chapter 4, another servant is sent, and he's beaten again, but it gets a little worse. He takes a beating to the head, and he's treated shamefully. But then in verse 5, it kind of climaxes, right? Like, it gets even worse. Right? He sends another servant, and what do they do to him? Hmm, sounds like John the Baptist. Right? They kill him, and, and several prophets lost their life. And then, and then verse 5 continues on to tell us that they did this with so many other ones. Right? They, be, they, beat this, they beat the prophets, they tortured them, they killed them. This owner, listen, this owner has been unusually gracious. Do you see that? Who else would do such a thing? He's so gracious to these wicked tenants. You would think after one attempt that he would come back and destroy the place or take it back evict those evil tenants but instead he keeps on sending servant after servant after servant and then it gets even more intense in verse six he said i still had one to send i still had one more and that's where we see the beloved son his son his loved son his much loved son and and so now he sends him this is strange and uncommon do you see this this parable is meant to highlight the graciousness of god so he sends his son but now we need to see what's uncommon, even about the, the wicked tenants. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, it says, But those tenant farmers said to one another, Notice the plot. Notice the scheme. This is the heir. Do they know who he is? Do they know? This is the heir. They know who it is. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Ugh, like, like think about how wicked this is. They're not killing somebody that they don't believe is the real son of God. Do you understand? They see him for who he is. And so, so in verse 8, 
Jesus, no doubt, has gathered a crowd, right? We're still in the temple. Do you understand that? Like, we're still in the temple. He has a crowd around him, and so he has the attention of everybody, but then you can almost feel him making direct eye contact with the Sanhedrin. Do you understand? Like, it's not a simple story. Like, he stops what he's doing, gathers a crowd, tells the story, and then makes eye contact with them, and he says this in two rhetorical questions. Look at the first one. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? What will, he, what will they do? Look, look, look at first time, think about it. But notice, like, notice, like, he doesn't wait for their response. That's the first thing that should kind of catch you off guard in the story. Like, he's, he asks them a rhetorical question, right, making eye contact with them, and he is, I mean, he's going off right now, and he doesn't give them chan- a chance to answer. No, actually, he actually states, he actually states for them what will happen, right? The father will do what? He will come and destroy them, and then he will take the vineyard and give it to others. And then, then he asks the representatives of the Sanhedrin another rhetorical question in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Haven't you read, haven't you read this, this, this scripture? What do you think? Have they read that scripture? Of course. Of course. If they're Pharisees, like, do you understand? They had it memorized. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an offensive question. Feel the tension, feel the hostility, feel what the leader, what's happening to the leaders in this moment. The experts in the scripture, the guardians of the Torah, the ones who have authority to teach the Torah, in the most offensive way, Jesus makes eye contact with them and says, haven't you read? Like, he's, he's, he's insulting them. Do you understand? This is offensive, and it would have been humiliating to them. It would have been beautiful to watch, but it would have been absolutely humiliating. So in verses 10 and 11, he comes out of the parable by quoting Psalm chapter 118, 22 through 23, confirming and concluding with a parable with a reference from Scripture. This is so, so fascinating. And here is what is most unique, really most unique about Psalm chapter 118. Right, let me read for you verses you know, 10 and 11 real quick. This stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Say cornerstone. cornerstone. The cornerstone. This is going to be so much more important here in a minute. This came about from the Lord. Who, who did this? The Lord. The Lord planned this. Right, It was the evil intention of men, but they are held accountable for their actions. They wanted to do this. Do you understand? They wanted to kill the son to gain what? The inheritance. They chose it. Okay, God knew it was going to happen, and then God is going to use this evil plan of theirs to glorify himself. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Here is what is so unique, so unique about quoting this scripture. Mark is going to tell you why he quoted that scripture, okay? Do you see it yet in verse 12? As students of the scriptures, like you need to start seeing these things as they arise. They know. Okay, your skin should be crawling right now. They know. They know. Do you understand? They know that this parable is true. Verse 12 gives you that indicator. Look at it. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they what? They knew. They knew. Like your skin should be on fire. Like like they know. Remember what Mark taught. Now we need to go and under, we need to go a little bit farther in parables to understand what's going on. They know that this parable was spoken against them. They know it. Okay, they understand it. They perceive truth. Right. This is so interesting. Remember what Mark taught in in Mark chapter four. Remember Jesus told the the, the parable of the of the sower and the seed. Do you remember that? And the disciples didn't get it. Do you remember that? They didn't understand it. They, they didn't understand what was going on. And so later that evening, the disciples take Jesus aside and they say, "Tell us what." 
tell us the meaning, right? Tell us the meaning of this parable. We don't understand it, right? And so Jesus goes on to explain to the disciples the purpose of parables. He was using parables intentionally, using it specifically to weed out the outsiders. Do you, do you remember that? I hope you remember this, right? The secrets of the kingdom of God are given to who? The insiders. But the outsiders, everything comes to them in parables. So hearing, they what? They won't hear. And so seeing, they won't perceive. Do you remember this from Mark chapter 4? Parables were given to keep the insiders in and to, push the out, and to keep the outsiders out. Okay, this is so, so crucial. Parables were designed by Jesus up until Mark chapter 4 to reveal and conceal both of those things, descending on, depending on the state of your heart. Okay, if you had a hard heart like the outsiders, then the, then the meaning of the parable would, would be concealed from you. But if you were an insider and you were a disciple of his and you were following him with your heart, then that story would be opened up to you and then you could understand it. That was the design. A, a parable was an invitation for the insider, for the humble to pursue knowledge, something hidden, something deep within the parable. But to those on the outside, it remained a mystery. So what happened here? Like the, you see it, the Sanhedrin heard it. We have the, the entire purpose of parables has just been flipped against them. No longer is he keeping them out. He's actually bringing them in. This is so fascinating. For this one moment, this one parable, Jesus tells this one story and the outsiders get it. Something revealed has been concealed, but now just for a moment, their eyes are being opened and they can see the truth of the parable. They know. <laughs> now, how much more evil is that? They know exactly what they're about to do. See, the purpose of parables has been reversed here. This one, this one reversal provokes the climax of the gospel. Okay, this one parable, like this one story, will actually put Jesus one step closer to the cross. They are now, like, you, like if you were the Sanhedrin, this is what you would now understand. You now know that you have been working against God by killing his prophets. You now know, as the Sanhedrin ruling over Jerusalem, that you have been working against God himself, and now it has been exposed to you. You're doing it because you want everything for yourself. You want the inheritance. You see, false teachers will use you. False leaders will use you. Okay? So they perceive. They perceive what's coming from verse 9. Look back at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill you. And then he will take the vineyard away from you and give it to others. Think about this for a moment. As the crowd is watching the Son of God unleash his wrath against the Sanhedrin. Do you understand? This is a deep moment in the, in the religious leader's life. This is unreal. For their actions... For their evil actions, God will not only destroy them, he's actually going to give the vineyard to others, which in this case must mean the disciples, if I'm reading the text right. He's going to transfer the leadership of Israel away from the Sanhedrin, and he will give it directly to the disciples. And then all of this concludes with a transition. Notice the way the text breaks down. We go from a, from a agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor. You should have a line drawn in your text so you can see the difference. We move from one metaphor to the other. He's trying to show you something. We're going to transition from the power being held by the Sanhedrin to the power being held by somebody else. This is so interesting. 
So he confirms the judgment of God by, by citing Psalm chapter 118, 22 through 23. He informs them that the stone they rejected, which is a clear reference to himself, if you're understanding that now, right? You understand the metaphors transitioned. He's saying you are rejecting the son. You are rejecting the beloved son. You're rejecting the stone. And the stone that you rejected is going to be so important that it's going to become the cornerstone. Okay, at this time, you need to understand what a cornerstone is. Okay, you may know, you may not know. Okay, a building was set in the Old Testament, like in, in this time, the way they built a building is they would buy two sets of stones. They would have a cornerstone and they would have every other stone. You would spend just, you would spend the same amount of money on the cornerstone as you would the rest of the building, even if it was a thousand other stones. And then the stone, the cornerstone itself would be put in place and then the shape of the building would take the shape of the cornerstone. So if the cornerstone was a, was a rectangle that was two by two by four, then your building would be a two by two by four building just large. Okay, but the cornerstone set the anchor. The cornerstone was the thing that everything else it imitated would shape around that. If it was an octagon, the rest of the building would be an octagon. The cornerstone is the most important piece, the most important shape of the entire building because everything else in the building would copy that cornerstone. Very, very important. And so he's telling them, the stone that you've rejected is me. Whenever I lay this stone, the entire religious structure is now going to center and shape around who? Jesus. This is so, so important. This is why he said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in how many days? He's laying the cornerstone. He informs them that their rejection, their hardness of heart, is the very thing that God is going to use to lay this cornerstone, this new temple, this new religious system. And this is all part of the plan. Look at verse 11. This came about from who? This is so important. And listen, instead of repenting, this is where the real wickedness of the Sanhedrin kind of comes to full light. Instead of repenting, because they could have, right? They, they, they could have. They could have in the moment. They could have fell to their knees before the Son of God and said, man, we have messed up. Lord, have mercy. And would the Lord have had mercy? absolutely. We saw him, he was merciful for how many thousands of years as they killed his prophets? Would he have had mercy? Yeah, yes, he absolutely would have. So instead of repenting, right, and, and instead, of, instead of bowing the knee to Christ, right, we see verse 12 informs us of what? It, it seems that they're now aware of the plan, and they're all the more willing to accomplish it. This is why he's taking one more step closer to the cross. Ironically, ironically, the telling of the parable provokes the fulfillment of the parable. This is so ironic. When you really think about it, the telling of the parable provokes the fulfillment of the parable. It is the only, it is only, if you're really paying attention to what verse 12 says, it is only the popularity of Jesus in the presence of the crowd that prevents them from arresting him right now. Do you understand? They're aware of their wickedness. They're aware of their plan and they want to pull it off. They are committed. And so eventually these, these evil men will recruit a betrayer. And, and then they won't arrest Jesus in the temple. Nope, they won't do that, right? They'll come to him in the cover of dark, right? In the cover of night, and they'll arrest him at night. Why? That's right, because they're still afraid of the crowd. They still know they're wrong. Do you understand? This is how evil and wicked they really are. They still know they're wrong. So the telling of the parable is actually the thing that will bring about the fulfillment of the parable. And by telling the parable, he's taking one step closer to the cross, and he knows it. This is so good of our Savior. Now, what are we to do with this text as a church? What a beautiful text. Can we all agree? Like, I just, I read this, and I think, what a brave Savior. Like, what an unreal man. 
brave and courageous and holy and full of love for his people and God that he's willing to do this. So now what we need to see is we need to ask some questions. What are we to do with this parable? Even though this parable is told to confront the who? The Sanhedrin, that's right. Even though it's told to them, we can still apply it in our lives. Let me, let me kind of show you the way that I think we can apply this. It is relevant for anybody who has Christian leaders. It is relevant for anybody who is a Christian leader, okay? So let me, let me try to break this down into two categories. It's, it's, it's absolutely relevant to you, right? Anybody that you consider a Christian leader in your life, whether that's, you know, Josh as an elder of the church or me as, as the pastor of the church or somebody that you're listening to on the radio like John Piper, John MacArthur, any of those guys that we look to for spiritual leadership, any of the books you read, this text applies to them. Let me show you. I want to show you just a couple of things. First of all, there is grace. Oh, there is grace. Okay, like this is unreal. Like when you really see what's going on. These religious leaders have abused the servants of God for a long time. So notice, first of all, the grace. It's not like they made one mistake. Do you see that? It's not like they made one mistake and just re- re- you know, rejected one prophet. This happened for years and years and years, and they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. And then God still communicates his love to them by sending who? His son. He's still not done with them. Do you understand? He still has grace for them. And so first of all, understand this about Christian leaders. There can be lots of mistakes made over time, okay? And God has grace for them but at some point that he will draw the line. That's what you need to understand. At some point, there is a line crossed. So friends, let me, let me show you some temptations that I can see from the text. Christian leaders can be tempted to do the same things that the Sanhedrin did. For example, for example, they can be tempted to take the things of God and steal them for themselves. They can want the inheritance. They can want the money. They can want the power. They can want the authority. Right? They can do all of those things. But let me show you a couple of other things that I think you may miss if you don't just kind of dive into the allegory of the parable itself. Do we have the prophets coming to us as they did to them? Yes, we do. We have it right here. This is what you need to understand. So the, the, so have we been sent messages from the prophets? That's what we call, like, we have, like, minor prophets in Old Testament. We have major prophets, right? You have prophetical writings by prophets, these people who were killed— in the book in front of you. Okay, you have the same teaching, the same message that was given to them. All of the Old Testament was complete before this ever happened. And so you have all the prophetical messages that were delivered by those prophets in your hands. Okay, and so for, so it's our holy scripture. So as, as a Christian leader, right, as a Christian leader, um, you're supposed to take, if, if, if you are, you want to be someday, you're supposed to take the message that was delivered and without twisting it and without torturing it and without hurting it, you're supposed to deliver that message onto the people. If you don't do that, you're doing the same exact thing that the tenant farmers did. Do you understand? You're rejecting them. You're beating them. They're killing them. It's easily done. Like, it's, it's so easily done. One of the easiest ways for pastors to do this is just not to preach from the Bible. Okay? I mean, if you, if you drive down I-27... And you're looking at all the churches that are kind of along the road on I-27. You'll see different sermon series that are running, okay? Right? You'll see things like we're doing church at the drive-in movies. And they're going to have the, like the most 12 popular movies that they're going to teach from over the next 12 weeks. That sounds harmless. Okay? But instead of teaching what was given by the prophets, they're instead going to take Forrest Gump and try to make spiritual allegories out of that. Okay? Sounds harmless. I know that. 
but I want you to see what's actually happening. They're just silencing the prophets. Okay, a lot of them will try to use scripture to twist it and fit it into these movie illustrations that they want to do, but they're not actually letting the text speak for itself. Okay? When pastors, and I've seen this over and over and over again, pastors will, on a Sunday, you know, the, the week before, on a Monday, they'll be flipping through their Bible and they'll stick their fingers somewhere and that's the text they're going to preach out of. And when that happens, they're not getting the entire prophet's story. They're just pulling out one little snippet, one little snip in the text, and they're going to build everything around that. And what happens is you just don't get the whole story. So they're silencing the prophets in, in, in some way. And churches do this. Let me tell you why they do this, right? I think it can be innocent at first. Right? They don't, they're just trying to draw a bigger crowd. But why are they trying to draw a bigger crowd? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You've got to see, like, you've got to see what's going on. If I don't preach this, if, if I preach what makes you feel happy and what makes you feel popular and makes you, you know, makes you feel loved and I, and I preach the prosperity gospel and I don't teach you the truth of Scripture, we can build a giant church overnight. I can draw a big salary. It could be fantastic. People do it all the time because they want the inheritance. If you avoid the difficult topics in the Bible, you can draw a large crowd, make more money, and have more power. Many churches, many, many church leaders will avoid teaching the truth of Scripture, and instead they will just position themselves to gain from you. False teachers will use you, okay? The Sanhedrin did it. We are tempted to do it now. Do you understand? So, church, you must, this is where this applies to you, okay? You need, to, you need like, eyes on me for a minute. Like, you really need to pay attention to what's about to happen. How do you know that I'm not doing that to you? How do you know? How do you know that I'm not just using you? I don't want a salary. That, that, that could be, I could want anything else. I could want power or authority. How do you know? Okay. Okay, you have to learn to study. I'm telling you this right now. You have to learn to study the Word of God on your own. The only way you can ever know that I'm not just using you, okay, is you can't just show up on a Sunday morning without being prepared. Okay? You can't do that. A Christian leader must let the text speak for itself. Okay? It's like um, Charles Spurgeon had a saying. He's like, how do you protect a lion in a cage? You open it. You open the cage. It will defend itself. And the same thing is true of Scripture. The job that I have before you is to open up the Word of God and teach it in a way that I just let the lion out of the cage. Okay, if I'm twisting it and, tw and turning it and making it say something that it's not, you have to catch that. Do you understand? That's the way you prevent this from happening. Love preaching, love it, love investing the time in it, but it is on your responsibility as well. The way that you protect yourself from other Christian leaders is you have to know what the prophet said. Do you understand? Okay, because if you don't, there will be false leaders who will use you. Okay. One of the very best ways that Christian leaders can use you is by silencing this book. Okay? If I have a prisoner of war and I want him to say anything that I want him to say, I just have to torture him long enough and then I can get him to say whatever I want. Preachers can do the same thing with the Word of God. They can twist it and they can torture it and they can take it out of context enough that I can get it to say whatever I want. Do you understand? So you have to be such a student of the Bible that you understand the context of the book of Mark, that you understand what's going on in the first century. Like, you have to devote yourself to the book. 
Okay? This parable is a warning, right? If you're paying attention, it's a warning to Christian leaders, and it's a warning to you, okay? It is a warning to you. There will be people in your future who will try to use this book to take advantage of you. You have to know it better than them, okay? You have to know it better. Well, the, the text also comes with an example um, to follow, a, a, good, a, good, a good example to follow. It's full of wisdom. I want you to see the change in Jesus, okay? We had 11 chapters where he was passive. Do you understand that? He was gentle. He was humble. He was passive. And then in chapter 12, he walks straight into the center of the religious leader's position, and it just overturns everything. We have an example to follow, okay? I can see Jesus. I mean, I hope you can see him being wise and calculated, all right? He's not just flying off the chain. Do you understand that? This isn't a momentary outrage of anger. Like, for his life, he's calculated this point where he walks in and delivers a death blow at exactly the right time, okay? So I want you to see, first of all, like how wise and brave he is at confronting the religious leaders who are hurting other people, okay? We have an example to follow, okay? We have a a true example. I know for myself, I know for myself, I can be very tempted to keep my mouth shut, when I feel like I'm at odds with another pastor, and when it happens, and then it does happen, whenever I start talking about some of the ideas that I see in Scripture, they will just start chewing at me over it, and I can be very tempted to remain silent, to keep the peace. Like, that's kind of my nature. I don't like the tension. You understand? Like, I don't want to be in that moment with another pastor. But I can see that maybe I should learn to be more like him. Right? I can see my failure that I have to own. I've had several interactions with pastors over the last year that I'm like, man, I should have just stood my ground and, and opened up the Bible and said, dude, you're killing the prophets. Like, you're totally taking text out of, like, you're, you're taking it straight out of context and using it for your own benefit. And I should have been willing to do that. And so as I studied this text, I found myself praying this week that I could become more like him. But not being uncalculated. Like, I want to be calculated and wise and know the prophets so well that whenever a pastor says something that is straight heretical, that I can just come back to the scriptures and say, brother, I think you're wrong. Here's why. Right? That should be me. You should hold me to that standard. And so if you hear me ever backing down from one of those, those conversations, you should pray for me and encourage me not to do that. I should be more like Jesus in that moment. Okay? But I want to challenge you as well. You must not silence the word of God. You must know the prophets. You can't torture them. You can't kill them. You can't beat them. You can't make them say something that you want them to say. And the way that you actually do that is by studying the Word of God. Okay? So, not trying to guilt you into studying the Word of God. That doesn't work. Do you understand? I've seen that sermon so many times. Like, it just doesn't work. Right? But I want you to love the, the one who wrote the Word enough that you want to go study it. So, here's your big idea again. False leaders want to use you. False leaders want to use you, and they will use the book to do it, okay? And the way they pull that off is because we don't know what the prophets actually said. So it is our commitment as a church that we will always, always preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, right? I've had some already at work ask me, am I going to preach a Christmas sermon on Christmas? No. Absolutely not, right? If we were meeting on that Sunday, I'd be preaching in the next section in Mark. Do you understand? Like, that's my commitment to you, right? And so I just want you to see that we're not going to do that. I know there's some wisdom of people having some topical sermons. I know that. But my, my, my commitment to you is I won't do that. We're going to preach verse by verse.
through books of the Bible. Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or Disciples Church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at Yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at Yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples. Let's go make disciples.